Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we have episode 230 today for July 26th, 2021. First of all, I gotta say, Hawaii was absolutely beautiful. Me and my two daughters had a great time there. We were there for about a little, little over a week. Uh, stopped in Honolulu to do Pearl Harbor. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna fly nine hours <laughs> to Hawaii uh, and, and not stop by and see Pearl Harbor. That was very sobering. Uh, very glad I went to see that. Uh, and then we spent the rest of our time on Maui, and we had a great time there. Uh, we went off to Hana, and uh, the really windy road out there in the black sand beaches, and did some snorkeling with some sea turtles. Went to the Haleakala, uh, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's the uh, the dormant volcano. It's about 10,000 feet. And we caught sunset from up there with just, just amazing. And also while we were there, right before, actually right before we went up the mountain, we had dinner with Patrick Wardle, uh, who was on the show, uh, who's been on the show before. He's a really excellent Mac uh, security researcher. And it was great. I'd had him on the show, but I'd never met him in person. Like most of the people I interview, with, <laughs> they're all remote. Uh, so it was really great to hang out with him. He's a great guy. Uh, we had a lot of fun, uh, talked a little bit of shop with, uh, but tried to keep that to a minimum with my daughters there. Were, the eyes were kind of glazing, <laughs> glazing over <laughs> as we talked about, uh, security stuff. But, uh, anyway, a great time, wonderful time in Hawaii. Now, today we got a lot of news. There's been a lot of things happening uh, in the last two weeks since we uh, talked last about news. Uh, so today we're going to go through uh, some Apple fixes that you really want to make sure you get. You're going to want to update your macOS and iOS, and we'll talk a little bit about why uh, why you want to do that. The Revil Ransomware Group, it's been quite a couple weeks for them. Uh, they've completely disappeared from the dark web, and we're not sure exactly why. We've got some speculation, though, and we'll get into that. And the Casilla ransomware thing, which uh, was from the Revil Group, which was potentially one of the biggest ransomware hacks of all time, that seems to have come to an interesting conclusion. Uh, I'll, I'll catch you up on that. And then, of course, the other big story was the Pegasus Project. And this was revelations about the NSO Group, which is an Israeli cybersecurity slash spying company that we've talked about several times on the show before. Uh, so we're going to have to talk about that for a little bit. And I I, I think we're going to be talking about that one more in the future, uh, but we'll at least touch touch base on that one. There's a couple, of course, a couple new Windows bugs that, that I'm going to draw your attention to uh, that you need to make sure you keep up to date on and uh, protect yourself in the meantime. Venmo has made a very welcome change to some privacy policy stuff. And then we're going to talk about a, f a few stories that are kind of all related and will lead into the, um, uh, the tip of the week. And it's about location and phone contact information leakage. We're going to talk about uh, how the FBI is actually locating cars by spying on the Wi-Fi from your car. And then I've got a story about the industry of de-anonymizing data. We talk, we, you know, we, we like to think that all of our data being collected by Facebook and Google or whatever is being, you know, properly anonymized before it's shared with marketers uh, who are trying to sell you stuff. But turns out it's not that hard to re-identify. And then we'll talk about a specific story about how that basic process led to a priest being kind of forced to resign when it was allegedly revealed that he might be frequenting gay bars. So there are real-world consequences to this. So I thought it was important that we cover that. And just coming across the wire, actually, as I'm recording this, I saw on Twitter, looks like 3.8 billion phone numbers from Clubhouse members' contact lists uh, has leaked onto the dark web and is up for sale. And we'll talk about what that means. And then finally, uh, we're gonna, the tip of the week, actually, 
comes from an old article, but it made me think about this. And I uh, want to make sure that people understand, especially since I just got back from a trip to Hawaii where I rented a car, that when you pair your phone to a car via Bluetooth, it's often very easy, and I'm not sure if it's automatic, but uh, to share your phone's contact list with that car. And when you turn that rental car back in, that data is still there unless you deleted it. And that's also true, by the way, of your car when you go to sell it. So we'll talk about that for the tip of the week. So lots to talk about. Let's get to the news. First up, real quick, um, you definitely want to update macOS and iOS, which is your Apple computers and your Apple devices, to the latest and greatest software. There have been some serious security bugs fixed. I'm going to talk about one of them here, but there's been others. Um, and so it's important that you get those updates. That would be iOS 14.7 and macOS 11.5, Big Sur 11.5. So a little excerpt here from a bleeping computer article. It says, Apple has rolled out security updates to address dozens of iOS and macOS vulnerabilities, including a severe iOS bug dubbed Wi-Fi Daemon that could lead to denial of service or arbitrary code execution. And we talked about this on, I think, the last news show. Successful exploitation would make it possible to break an iPhone's Wi-Fi functionality on joining hotspots with SSIDs containing the percent character. And it gives the example that I gave back when we talked about it, percent %P, percent %S, percent %S, blah, 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 percent %N. And this is once triggered on a vulnerable iPhone, iPad, or iPod, the bug would render it unable to establish Wi-Fi connections, even after rebooting or renaming the Wi-Fi hotspot. Fixing the Wi-Fi breaking issue requires resetting network settings to remove the names of all Wi-Fi networks, including the rogue ones, from the lists of known SSIDs. As ZecOps later found, that's uh, some sort of security company, threat actors could also execute arbitrary code without user interaction when unpatched devices joined a rogue Wi-Fi hotspot with a maliciously crafted SSID containing the percent at sign character. Luckily, as mobile security startup ZecOps revealed, the zero-click remote code execution component of Wi-Fi Daemon was only present starting with iOS 14 and was silently addressed by Apple with the release of 14.4. And of course, as I just said, 14.7 just came out. So it's been some time back. Attackers could exploit this bug by planting malicious Wi-Fi hotspots in popular and highly circulated areas to attack iPhone devices configured to auto-join new Wi-Fi networks. If you don't want to or cannot immediately update your iOS device to iOS 14.7 to secure it from Wi-Fi daemon attacks, you are advised to disable the Wi-Fi auto-join feature by choosing Never on the Settings Wi-Fi Auto-Join Hotspot option. The bug impacts iPhones 6S and later and all iPad Pro models, iPad Air 2 and later, iPad 5th generation and later, iPad Mini 4 and later, and iPod Touch 7th generation, as Apple revealed in its security advisory published earlier this week. Okay, so I would say, regardless of this, you should never auto-join Wi-Fi in any way, shape, or form. That's just bad. Uh, so not only on your phones, not only on your iPads and your iPods, your laptops, make sure that you go into your network settings and never auto-join Wi-Fi. That is just a horrible security practice. So you always want to at least be prompted to join. And honestly, I don't even do that. I, I, I always use my own Wi-Fi or that's it. Or if I'm on the road, I will use the hotspot from my phone. So I will, the only Wi-Fi I will join public is the one that comes off my iPhone. I do not uh, join Wi-Fi at you know, Starbucks, McDonald's, or hotels, or airports, unless I just absolutely have to, and then I use a VPN. All right, moving on. 
Revil Ransom, or R Evil, depending, I, I think Revil just kind of flows a little bit better, but if you look at it, it's kind of spelled R Evil. They have been in the news a lot lately, and uh, it's kind of coming to a culmination here. So I want to read a couple of articles about that. First one is from CPO Magazine, and it kind of goes over a little bit of what happened. So uh, I'll let that kind of do the talking there. The Revil ransomware gang implicated in the high-profile attacks on JBS and Casilla seems to have very suddenly disappeared from the Internet. Cybersecurity researchers report that the entirety of the group's infrastructure, from extortion pages to servers, has gone offline. The group has even closed up pages advertising its services on the dark web. It may be that the Biden administration's warning of more aggressive actions scared the hackers into the shadows, but it may also be a tactical retreat. Ransomware groups have been known to disband when the heat is on and take an extended break, only to reform and reappear under another name, something that Revil has already done in the past. Security researchers do not know if the Revil ransomware group has made a permanent exit, but at the moment it has taken every element of its operation offline. This is the first time the group has made itself completely unavailable since it first appeared in early 2019. Revil ransomware is something that can be essentially rented by other criminals, meaning that the group is generally very accessible on the dark web. But for the first time, it has pulled all of its customer-facing infrastructure offline, payment portals, chat rooms, and the informational extortion pages that are linked to when a target is infected with ransomware. Some researchers point out that individual elements of the group's customer contact efforts, such as its infamous Happy Blog, have gone down for days at a time before. However, it has never taken down the entirety of its dark web setup for an extended period of time such as this before. The move comes as U.S. President Joe Biden has made statements about being more aggressive with cyber attackers and said that he has pressed Russian President Vladimir Putin to take action against criminals operating with, from his territory. The Putin government has long tacitly allowed criminal hackers to operate from the country so long as they avoid domestic targets or any allied or foreign targets that might cause diplomatic or legal problems. Revil is among the groups that have really been pushing the limits of that unspoken arrangement as of late, with the Revil ransomware used against high-profile targets tied to critical infrastructure in the U.S. The situation for those currently dealing with an R-Evil ransomware attack is unclear. The attack on management software provider Casilla spiraled out to impact an estimated thousands of victims throughout the world. Some of them may have been planning to pay Revil to resolve the issue or were in the midst of negotiations with them, but with the group having pulled all of its dark web communications offline, it's unclear what will happen to those who have still locked systems and the leaked data that could potentially be made public. Prior to the group's disappearance, Revil ransomware has been attributed to a string of attacks beyond the headline-grabbing compromises of Casilla and meatpacking giant JBS. These include Taiwan-based Apple contractor Quanta and a major law firm in New York thought to be handling a case related to former President Donald Trump. The group has already dissolved under pressure and reformed at least once before in its history. It started out as the Gand Crab Group, which went on a ransomware spree in 2018 that primarily targeted healthcare vendors and supposedly netted the group $2 billion in revenue. All right, and as a follow-up here, um, this is from Wired, uh, and it's titled, The Casilla Ransomware Nightmare is Almost Over. And it covers a little of the same ground. I tried to remove the redundancies, but there's some overlap here. It says, Nearly three weeks ago, a ransomware attack against a little-known IT software company called Casilla spiraled into a full-on epidemic, with hackers seizing the computers of as many as 1,500 businesses, including a major Swedish grocery chain. Last week, the notorious group behind the hack disappeared from the Internet, leaving victims with no way to pay up and free their systems. But now the situation seems close to finally being resolved thanks to the surprise appearance on Thursday of a universal decryption tool. The July 2nd hack was about as bad as it gets. 
Casilla provides IT management software that's popular among so-called managed service providers, or MSPs, which are companies that offer IT infrastructures to companies who would rather not deal with it themselves. By exploiting a bug in an MSP-focused software called Virtual System Administrator, the ransomware group Revil was able to infect not just those targets, but their customers as well, resulting in a wave of devastation. In the intervening weeks, victims had effectively two choices, pay the ransom to recover their systems or rebuild what was lost through backups. For most individual businesses, Revil set the ransom at roughly $45,000 U.S. It attempted to shake down MSPs for as much as $5 million. It also originally set the price of a universal decryptor at $70 million. The group would later come down to $50 million before vanishing, likely in a bid to lay low during a high-tension moment. When they disappeared, they took their payment portal with them. Victims were left stranded, unable to pay even if they wanted to. Casilla spokesperson Dana Leadholm confirmed to Wired that the company obtained a universal descriptor from a quote-unquote trusted third party, but she did not elaborate on who provided it. The ability to free up every device that remains encrypted is undeniably good news, but the number of victims left to help at this point may be relatively a small chunk of the initial wave. That's because anyone who could reconstitute their data through backups, payment, or otherwise likely would have done so by now. Many of the Revil victims were small and mid-sized businesses. As MSP customers, they're definitionally the type who prefer to outsource their IT needs, which in turn means that they may be less likely to have reliable backups readily available. Still, there are other ways to rebuild data, even if it means asking clients and vendors to send whatever they've got and start over from scratch. So this is interesting. I'm sure we've not heard the last of this. I'll be uh, you know, maybe we'll never find out what really happened here, but my guess is it will leak out eventually. But it's very interesting that they've all of a sudden disappeared and this universal decryption tool just magically appeared. Uh, it's still devastating for a lot of these companies. I mean, even just even if you have the key, getting back up and running, even if you've got good backups, um, is not an easy thing to do and can be very expensive and time consuming. Given that it has happened, this is probably a decent outcome, but it was sad that it ever happened in the first place. All right, next up, let's talk about this Pegasus project. Uh, and this, uh, I'm going to read part of an article here from the Washington Post, which is one of the several journalistic groups involved in this project, um, looking into this group called the NSO Group from Israel. Uh, so let me just read from this article, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Military-grade spyware leased by the Israeli firm NSO Group to governments for tracking terrorists and criminals was used in attempted and successful hacks of 37 smartphones belonging to journalists, human rights activists, business executives, and the two women closest to murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, according to an investigation by The Washington Post and 16 media partners led by the Paris-based journalism nonprofit Forbidden Stories. Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International, a human rights group, had access to a list of more than 50,000 numbers and shared it with the news organizations, which did further research and analysis. Amnesty's security lab did a forensic examination on the phones. Here are the key takeaways from the investigation. Phones identified were from a sprawling list. 37 targeted smartphones appeared on a list of more than 50,000 numbers that were that are concentrated in countries known to engage in surveillance of their citizens and also known to have been clients of NSO Group, a worldwide leader in the growing and largely unregulated private spyware industry the investigation found. The list does not identify who put the numbers on it or why, and it is unknown how many of the phones were targeted or surveilled. But forensic analysis of the 37 phones shows that many display a tight correlation between timestamps associated with a number on the list 
and the initiation of surveillance attempts, in some cases as brief as a few seconds. Politicians, journalists, and activists were found on the list. The numbers on the list are unattributed, but the reporters were able to identify more than 1,000 people spanning more than 50 countries through research and interviews on four continents, several Arab royal family members, at least 65 business executives, 85 human rights activists, 189 journalists, and more than 600 politicians and government officials, including cabinet ministers, diplomats, and military and security officers, as well as 10 prime ministers, three presidents, and one king. The purpose of the list could not be conclusively determined. The company says it polices its clients for abuses. The targeting of the 37 smartphones would appear to conflict with the stated purpose of NSO's licensing of the Pegasus spyware, which the company says is intended only for use in surveilling terrorists and major criminals. The evidence extracted from these smartphones revealed here for the first time calls into question pledges by the Israeli company to police its clients for human rights abuses. NSO Chief Executive Shalev Julio said Sunday that he was, quote, very concerned, unquote, by the Post's reports. And continuing to quote him, he says, we are checking every allegation, and if some of the allegations are true, we will take stern action and will terminate contracts like we did in the past. If anybody did any kind of surveillance on journalists, even if it's not by Pegasus, it's disturbing, unquote. The NSO group is at the center of a global debate. The company, which began in an Israeli kibbutz, is now valued by investors at more than $1.5 billion. Julio, the CEO, said in a lengthy late-night interview that he would, quote, shut Pegasus down, unquote, if there were a better way to help governments deliver security. But he acknowledged that the NSO's ability to investigate abuse is crippled by its policy of having no visibility into clients' activities. The discovery on a list of phone numbers of 37 smartphones that have been either penetrated or attacked with Pegasus spyware fuels the debate over whether Apple has done enough to ensure the security of its devices, popular the world over for their reputation of resisting hacking attempts. 34 of the 37 were iPhones. And then another final point, new details of hacking carry worldwide implications. Among the 37 phones confirmed to have been targeted, 10 were in India and another 5 in Hungary, mostly linked to journalists, activists, and business people. The finding will add to concerns about extra-legal government surveillance conducted with private spyware in both countries. Hundreds more numbers from India and Hungary appear on the broader global list. A third country, Mexico, was home to nearly one-third of the numbers of the list, adding to questions about its past use of Pegasus software. Each country says it acts legally in carrying out any surveillance activity. Now, there were perhaps better and longer articles about this. Uh, much has been written about this in the last week or so. But this NSRO group basically, kind of like Clearview AI, says that they are providing this service only to people that deserve to use it. Uh, and law enforcement, intelligence agencies, you know, for the purposes of catching bad guys. Now, who gets to define who the bad guys are? That is always an interesting question. Second, because the NSO group here says that they, you know, have policies and yet they have no way to enforce or police them, which makes them extremely ineffective, says that, you know, it will, it's terms of service say you're not supposed to do anything bad with it. You know, that, and obviously, uh, based on what we're seeing here, and this is still very preliminary, we haven't really figured out, you know, exactly what this list of 50,000 phone numbers really means, where it came from, who generated it. There's a lot of speculation that this is maybe some of the only data that the NSO group contains is a list of the numbers that have been targeted, maybe for their own CYA purposes. I don't know. We're still very early on this story, but it doesn't look good. 
for me, it gets back to the real question of how is there a legal spyware market at all? And that's a deep issue, a nuanced issue, and I would love to get some people on the show to talk about that. So I'll be looking to do some interviews on this uh, in the near future. All right, moving on. There's yet another Windows bug out there. Uh, the print nightmare thing is still going on. Um, uh, you can go back to the last news episode to learn more about that. Uh, in the meantime, until they, you know, Microsoft keeps trying to fix this printer spooler bug uh, and keeps falling short. And so until this is really taken care of, you should really turn your print spooler off. And, you know, just FYI, so the print spooler is the kind of thing where you go into, you know, Microsoft Word or Excel and you want to, or your photo app, and you want to print off something to your computer and say print, and it brings up a little dialogue real quick, and then it goes away, and then you can go about your business. Well, the reason you can do that is because behind the scenes, your app has said, I want this to be printed, and it hands it off to another app in the background, a utility, a service that Windows runs that captures everything that needs to go to the printer and puts it in a queue. You know, if you want to visit, you know, if you print a whole bunch of stuff and you bring up your printer queue and it lists all the things that are waiting to be printed, that's a function of your print spooler. So basically right now, uh, if you want to be safe, you need to turn that off and means basically you can't print. And, you know, some people have said, well, you know, if you really need to print, then, you know, turn the print spooler on long enough to print, then turn it back off. It's, it's, a, it's a total mess. But now there's a new bug that I want to tell you about. And unfortunately, when it comes to these things that, you know, they, a lot of these articles, including this one, give specific things you can do to mitigate or eliminate the risk until a fix comes out. And this is one of them. And, but it's, this is an audio podcast. You're probably in your car or maybe you're running down the road, uh, jogging or something. Uh, you're not going to remember what I'm going to tell you. So, uh, I would just refer you to the show notes, find this article. And in this article, you can find the details. I will give you the highlights, but if you want the specific details on this, uh, you'll get to need to look up the article. This is from Lifehacker. It says, a new security vulnerability has been discovered in the latest version of Windows that hackers could use to remotely install programs, steal data and passwords, and even lock users out of their PCs. Microsoft says that all versions of Windows newer than Windows 10 version 1809, which I think came out last year, are affected, including the Windows 11 beta. According to Microsoft's bug report, the vulnerability stems from, quote, overly permissive access control lists on multiple system files, including the security accounts manager database, unquote. The bug has not been successfully exploited, but Microsoft's report cautions that such an attack is, quote unquote, likely given how severe the, the vulnerability is. In order to execute an attack, the attacker would need direct access to a person's computer, either physically or by tricking them into downloading malware-laden files, which is much more common. Once a hacker has access, they can give themselves full administrator controls and, quote, install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights, unquote. Microsoft will ostensibly pass the issue in future security updates for Windows 10 and 11, but users should be careful until then. Practice common sense data security like not clicking on unknown email links or downloading files from sketchy websites and using reliable anti-malware programs. There's also a temporary workaround that restricts access to the vulnerable system files on your PC. This will keep hackers out, but will make it harder to recover files using the system restore feature, hence it won't work as a long-term solution. Nonetheless, it's worth considering if you want to fully protect yourself from possible security breaches. First, you need to restrict access to the Winder System32 config system folder. Next, you need to delete the system restore points. Make sure you do this after you restrict access to the config folder. And then once, once the old backups are deleted, you may create a new system restore point if you want. 
So again, there are detailed step-by-step instructions for how to do that if you really want to do it. I would just say keep an eye out for Microsoft updates and just continue to follow really good internet computer security hygiene. All right, next up, a welcome change from Venmo. Uh, and we just talked about this recently, so it's kind of good timing. Uh, and this is an article from TechCrunch. PayPal-owned payments app Venmo will no longer offer a public global feed of users' transactions as part of a significant redesign focused on expanding the app's privacy controls and better highlighting some of Venmo's newer features. The company says it will instead only show their users' quote-unquote friends feed, meaning the app's social feed where you can see just your friends' transaction. Venmo has struggled over the years to balance its desire to add a social element to its peer-to-peer payments-based network with the need to offer users their privacy. I'm not sure how much they struggled with that, or at least I could tell where they came down on that. Uh, Until today, I guess this is good, but anyway. A few years ago, the company was forced to settle a complaint with the FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, over its handling of privacy disclosures in the app, along with other issues related to security and privacy of user transactions. One of the concerns at the time was a setting that made all transactions public by default, a feature the FTC says wasn't being properly explained to customers. As a part of the settlement, Venmo had to inform both new and existing users how to limit the visibility of their transactions, among other changes. However, privacy issues have continued to follow Venmo over the years. More recently, BuzzFeed News was able to track down President Biden's secret Venmo account because of the lack of privacy around Venmo friend lists, for example. Afterward, the company rolled out friend list privacy controls to address the issue. In the newly updated app, Venmo will still highlight this friend list privacy setting so users can choose whether or not they want to have their profile appear on other people's friends lists. Users will also still be able to remove or add contacts from their friend list at any time, block people, and set their transaction privacy either as they post or retroactively to public, private, or friends only. It's unclear what advantage posting publicly has, though, as the global public feed is gone. Instead, public transactions would be visible to users, non-friends only, when someone visited their profile directly. Venmo says the redesigned Venmo app will begin to roll out today to select customers and will be available to all users across the U.S. over the next few weeks. And today was July 22nd when that article came out. All right, next up is an article about how the FBI is spying on cars using Wi-Fi and cell site simulators, which is a topic we've discussed before. It says the FBI is using a controversial technology traditionally used to locate smartphones as a car tracking surveillance tool that spies on vehicles onboard Wi-Fi. Known as a Stingray or cell site simulator, the tool masquerades as a cell tower in order to force all devices in a given area to connect to it. Agents can then pick the number they're interested in and locate the device. Normally this would be a mobile phone, but a search warrant application discovered by Forbes shows it can also be used to find vehicles as long as they have onboard Wi-Fi. That's because car Wi-Fi systems act like a phone in that they reach out to mobile networks to get their data. So it makes sense that police would use it to find a car, though this appears to be the first case on record of it happening. The application to use the Stingray was filed by the FBI in Wisconsin in May as it sought to locate a vehicle, a Dodge Durango Hellcat, it believed was being used by a man indicted for a drug dealing and firearms possession crimes. The FBI had already been given permission to use other kinds of surveillance to locate another vehicle, a black Jeep, associated with the subject, according to the warrant application. Again, they were surveillance techniques traditionally used to track cell phones, the first being a pen register, which gets data from a cell phone provider to monitor connections made by the device to other phones or electronic devices. The second was a so-called ping warrant, 
which shows the locations of cell towers used by a device. That gave them the location of a car dealership where they learned the suspect had traded in the Jeep for the Dodge, the FBI wrote in its application. After that, the FBI decided to use the cell site simulator. Towards the end of the warrant application, a federal agent explained why, noting that the cars like the Dodge were, quote, frequently equipped with cellular modems inside their vehicles. These cellular modems are assigned a unique cellular identifier and generate historical and perspective records similar to a traditional cell phone. These records can assist law enforcement in identifying the location of the vehicle, including patterns of travel and areas where the subject may reside or frequent. Most original equipment manufacturers, or OEMs, have partnered with AT&T or Verizon to provide cellular connectivity within their vehicles. A check of open-source information from AT&T identifies the 2021 Dodge Durango Hellcat as a vehicle that has a built-in Wi-Fi hotspot that is serviced by AT&T, unquote. The Stingray tool appeared to have helped with another government document showing the warrant had been executed and that the cell site simulator had indicated that there was a high probability the Dodge was located inside a garage. Stingrays have been controversial in the past as they suck up data from all devices that connect into them, meaning information on many innocents' phones or cars will be hoovered up. That's why lawmakers have proposed legislation to mandate warrants with strong probable cause before the surveillance technology is deployed, and why warrant applications come with boilerplate disclaimers like the one in Wisconsin. And it quotes it here saying, quote, The investigative device may interrupt cellular service of phones or other cellular devices within its immediate vicinity. Any service disruption to non-target devices will be brief and temporary, and all operations will attempt to limit the interfer- interference of such devices, unquote. It also promises to delete data recorded from non-suspects. The case highlights how cars are no longer just vehicles, but networks on wheels, and all that data can be useful to government agencies. As Forbes recently reported, police can and have acquired location data from a car's airbag system or brake light module. They've also previously requested location data from companies that have in-car systems that track millions of vehicles' GPS coordinates every day, including GM OnStar and fleet management providers Geotab and Spirion. And this is a quote from Nate Wessler, uh, Deputy Director of ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, uh, who we've had on this show before. He says, quote, Many people don't realize that modern cars aren't just wheels and an engine anymore. They are computers and cell phones, too. These features offer convenience and efficiency to drivers, but they also generate sensitive information about where we go and what we do. Strong privacy protections are important for this kind of vehicle information, just as they are for information generated by our cell phones and laptops. So yeah, one of the reasons I want to bring this up, and I've actually been looking for someone to talk to about privacy related to cars these days, Because your car is recording lots of data about you. Your car has various systems in it that could be queried, for instance, after an accident to find out how fast it was going, how the brakes were applied, uh, and several other things about your car and what you were doing in that car um, after an accident um, that can be queried by, apparently, law enforcement. But also, the other thing to realize is that a lot of modern cars are connected now. Even if you're not using the service, uh, they are still connected. They come with built-in cellular hotspots, basically. So even if you don't pay for the Wi-Fi service, they're still there because they, a lot of these companies want to get telemetry on their vehicles, uh, you know, to find out if there's been crashes, to find out where their vehicles are located, how many are being out on the, on the roads, and get, mine you for data. And while I was aware of that, and while I was also aware of cell site simulators, I hadn't put the two together to realize that 
you could use a cell site simulator or a stingray to track these cars as well as track people because basically you've got a cell phone built into your car. So this is going to come up again. I'm, again, I'm hoping to do a whole interview around this topic sometime soon. Next, let's talk about how <laughs> there's so much data out there floating around about us and how companies claim to anonymize or pseudonymize at least this data, which is to say that a truly anonymous data would have no person associated with it whatsoever. Uh, pseudonymized data changes out a person's name for a supposedly unique and untrackable identifier. So, um, you know, it's subject one, subject two, and you're supposedly not able to figure out that subject one was Carrie, for example. But it, as we're about to find out, it's often trivial to uh, reconnect that data to the actual person. So let's start with this first uh, article from Vice Magazine. Tech companies have repeatedly assured the public that trackers used to follow smartphone users through apps are anonymous or at least pseudonymous, not directly identifying the person using the phone. But what they don't mention is that an entirely overlooked industry exists to purposefully and explicitly shatter that anonymity. They do this by linking mobile advertising IDs, or MAIDs, collected by apps to a person's full name, physical address, and other personally identifiable information, or PII. Motherboard confirmed this by posing as a potential customer to a company that offers linking MAIDs to PII. And this is a quote from Brad Mack, who's the CEO of data broker Big DBM. And when they were posing as a customer, this is what he told them. He says, quote, We have one of the largest repositories of current fresh MAIDs to PII in the USA. All Big DBM USA data assets are connected to each other. And then he went on explaining that the MAIDs are linked to full name, physical address, and their phone, email address, and IP address if available. The data set also includes other information, quote, too numerous to list here, quote, according to Brad Mack. An MAID is a unique identifier a phone's operating system gives to its user's individual device. For Apple, this is IDFA, which Apple has recently moved to largely phase out. For Google, this is AAID, or Android Advertising ID. Apps often grab a user's MAID and provide that to a host of third parties. In one leaked data set from a location tracking firm called Predicio, previously obtained by Motherboard, the data included users of a Muslim prayer app's precise locations. That data was somewhat pseudonymized because it didn't contain the specific user's name, but it did contain their MAID. Because of firms like Big DBM, another company that buys the sort of data Predicio had could take that or similar data and attempt to unmask the people in the data set simply by paying a fee. This is a quote from Zach Edwards, uh, who's a researcher, and he says, quote, anyone and everyone who has a phone and has installed an app that has ads currently is at risk of being de-anonymized via unscrupulous companies. There are significant risks for members of law enforcement, elected officials, members of the military, and other high-risk individuals from foreign surveillance when data brokers are able to ingest data from the advertising bid stream, unquote. And he's referring to a process called real-time bidding, where third parties can, you know, get data on smartphone users in order to give them adverts, which we are going to be talking about at length next week. I'll tell you more about that um, at the end of the show. This de-anonymization industry uses various terms to describe their product, including identity resolution and identity graph. Other companies claiming to offer a similar service as Big DBM include Full Contact, which says it has 223 billion data points for the U.S., as well as profiles on over 270 million adults in the U.S. 
And this is a quote from some marketing material from Full Contact, which you can get online. And it says, quote, our whole person identity graph provides both personal and professional attributes of an individual, as well as online and offline identifiers, unquote. And it adds it also includes names, address, social IDs, and MAIDs. And it goes on to say, quote, MAIDs were built for the marketing and advertising community and are tied to an individual's mobile device, which makes them precise in identifying specific people, unquote. In April, Apple launched iOS 14.5, which introduced sweeping changes to how apps can track phone users by making each app explicitly ask for permission to track them. That move has resulted in a dramatic dip in the amount of data available to third parties, with just 4% of U.S. users opting in. Google says it plans to implement a similar opt-in measure broadly across the Android ecosystem in early 2022. And that's the end of that article, and uh, I will believe that last part when I see it. And honestly, all that means is that only Google has that information and, and not other people. So now let's take that, what we just learned there, and let's apply that to a very specific case. And this is also in the news recently. And this is from an article from the Washington Post. This week, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell stepped down from his job as top administrator for the U.S. Conference on Catholic Bishops after a newsletter said it used its location to determine he was using the Grinder app and frequenting gay bars. What stands out about this particular incident isn't that it's improbable, but it's the exact worst-case scenario privacy experts have been warning about for a long time. Personal data is collected, sold, and bought by a tangle of app developers, data brokers, and advertising companies with little oversight. The biggest shock may be that it didn't happen sooner. And this is a quote from Bennett Cyphers uh, from the EFF, who we talked about uh, the subject before. He says, quote, This is the first instance that I know of of this data being used by a journalistic entity to track a specific person and weaponize their private, secretly collected information against them. This is exactly the kind of privacy threat advocates have been describing for years, unquote. Right now, your smartphone is likely filled with apps that are collecting details about you, including your age, gender, political leanings, GPS data, or browsing habits. Grindr and other apps have long shared this kind of information with third-party data brokers, which exist in a largely unregulated sweet spot between websites, apps, and advertisers. The brokers gather the data from the apps, then sell it on the open market to parties that use it for ad targeting, political profiling, and even research. It's a well-established industry, but one that doesn't typically draw this level of attention. And this is a quote from Ashkan Soltani. Uh, he's an independent researcher and a former chief technologist at the FTC. He says, quote, Often the location data is used to determine what stores people visit. Things like sexual orientation are used to determine what demographics to target. Or it's used by nation-state actors to surveil people, but it's not publicly talked about, unquote. It's all above board, app companies have claimed, because the arrangement is spelled out in their privacy policies and their precautions built in. Experts say those precautions aren't enough. The data is typically stripped of the most obvious identifying information like a name, email, or cell number. However, it still contains information that could reveal the person behind it, such as a device ID, an IP address, or an advertising identifier. With the right outside information or a third-party service, so-called anonymous data can be de-anonymized as the pillar claims it did in the case of Burrell. In this case, the pillar says it, quote, correlated a unique mobile device to Burrell, unquote, using his presence at his family lake house, meetings he attended, and the USCCB staff residence and headquarters. It did not say how it collected that information. The pillar says that the data set it used was, 
quote, commercially available app signal data, unquote, from a data vendor that included grinder information, but it did not name the vendor or clarify if it bought the data directly from a broker or received it from another party. In a 2013 paper, researchers found that as little as four pieces of data on average were enough to re-identify someone 95% of the time. Latanya Sweeney, a data privacy expert and a professor at Harvard Kennedy School, showed how just a zip code, age, and gender could be used to identify patients in anonymous hospital datasets. Even something as simple as a person's work and home address could be enough to find a pattern strong enough to identify anonymous location data. And a 2020 study by the Norwegian Consumer Council found that Grindr and other apps were sharing personal data about their users with outside companies, including numerous data brokers. In Grindr's case, it also shared detailed location data, according to the Norwegian researchers. So then the article has a little thing about how to protect yourself, and it says, What is stopping similar instances from happening to other people? Very little, according to privacy experts. And this is a quote from Serge Eagleman. Uh, who's the research director of Usable Security and Privacy Group at the International Computer Science Institute. He says, quote, Consumers don't really have the tools to be able to protect themselves. Once the data leaves the device, there's no way of knowing what's actually going to happen to it, what other third parties will receive it. There's no knowledge of how the data will be used by anyone, unquote. Trying to fully protect your data would be a full-time job and not something most smartphone owners could easily manage. To start, you'd need to comb through every privacy policy, manually opt out of any relevant sharing options for each app you download, use a virtual private network or VPN, and maybe move somewhere with stronger consumer privacy protections like the European Union or even California. In California, individuals have the right to ask companies not to sell their personal information, including anything under a pseudonymous identification like their device ID, they can opt out of letting data brokers sell their information one by one, an arduous task. In other locations, that process isn't available or is impossible. There are some steps you can take to try to reduce your exposure, says EFF's Bennett Ciphers. Download fewer smartphone apps in general and delete anything you don't use. Lock down the kinds of data the remaining apps are able to access, especially your location. Go into your phone's privacy settings and look up location sharing, where you should find a list of apps with access to your location. Both Android and iOS devices let you limit when an app can access your location. Always limit access to while you're using the app or make the app ask you each time, and never let an app continuously track your location in the background without an exceptionally good reason. Reset your advertising ID in your smartphone settings. And by the way, that's, I don't, I don't even understand what that is, but there's, these devices have this MAID, uh, each one has their own, and, they, and it's a unique ID assigned to you, and you have the option to go in there whenever you want, on demand, and say, give me a new ID, which effectively should mean that any data collected against you against that ID is now disassociated with you, uh, but as we're learning here, <laughs> it's very easy to reassociate those IDs. It would not be hard for uh, an app developer to say, oh, well, he had this idea last week, but now he's got this other idea, but I know it's on the same phone, so it's got to be the same person, so that's the same guy. Anyway, back to the article. It says, if you're worried about someone knowing your browsing history, use a VPN, but be careful about which one. Ciphers says that a VPN won't protect your location information as well. Ultimately, it's an overwhelming amount of work to ask for regular people. It's a problem that may require more serious intervention, such as privacy regulation or even stricter rules for apps from the smartphone makers themselves. And, and then one final quote from Bennett, he says, Time and time again, whenever the burden is on users to opt out of something, the vast amount of users are not going to opt out of that thing. And that is precisely the point. And that's precisely why all these companies say, uh, hide behind their policies and say, oh, you've always had the power to turn this off. We've given you the power. All you've got to do is 
figure out where this setting is, which we don't make easy, and there's probably multiple settings, figure out what you have to set that to to limit your data, which they also make confusing, and then do that for every single app and service you own. See, you always have the power to do it. That's a lie. <laughs> that is just a myth. You know, if I said, you know, you can you can move that beach from Hawaii to California, you just have to move every grain of sand. See, you could do it. it it's about the same thing. All right, one more quick thing. And this is just something I happened to notice on Twitter before I started recording this, uh, which will probably become a new story <laughs> later today or tomorrow. Um, and that is somebody on the dark web is... Uh, has a database of 3.8 billion phone numbers from Clubhouse users. And if you don't know what Clubhouse is, it's kind of the latest craze in social media apps. It was invite only for a long time. I think now it's open to anybody who wants to join. Um, it's it's just another social media app. It's the next TikTok or the next Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. Um, their kind of claim to fame, I think, is that they're more of an audio meeting room kind of thing where you kind of join rooms and you can just kind of talk to people and listen to people in that room, uh, whatever. It, but at the end of the day, it's a social media app and they make their money by advertising. So do that. They need to collect your info and a favorite trick of all of these services. And you've probably noticed this when you've joined, gosh, Yahoo, Google, Snapchat, Facebook, any of these things, they'll ask you if you're doing it from a phone app, they'll ask you for access to your contact lists. If you're doing it from the web, like you're signing up for a new Yahoo mail account or something like that, they will say, hey, you know, why don't you give us access to your Google contacts and then we can help you find other friends and we can import all those contacts for you uh, and do all this, you know, very convenient things for you. But in the meantime, what you're doing is you're giving them access to everybody you know. Uh, and your social graph you know, the, the, you know, the connections that you make, people you know, and then the, you know, the, the people they know, uh, that tells a lot about you and can be very revealing. And not to mention the fact that a lot of us store information in our contact list stuff, in our notes section, for example, about a person, you know, what, what their birthdays are, you know, who they're married to. Anyway, if you're giving someone access to your contact list, it, that's a rich set of information. In this case, what it looks like is that this person... Clubhouse did this. Like when you join Clubhouse, the reason, the way you find other people on mobile apps a lot of times is through their phone number. So they'll say, hey, let us, you know, we'll let you know when your other friends join Clubhouse and we'll do that automatically. But all you got to do is give us access to your contact list. So more than likely, since this is 3.8 billion phone numbers, this is probably, I don't think there are 3.8 billion users of Clubhouse, but there are probably, if you took all the, you know, there's one or 2 billion people that are in Clubhouse, and took all their phone lists and and sorted out the extras. This is there's probably 3.8 billion phone numbers out there. So anyway, I just want to read this because I think it's just curious. Here is the actual posting on the dark web from this person selling uh, this data. It says Clubhouse, valued at over three billion dollar US, is the latest social network, including the most influential people in the world. Compromised data: 3.8 billion phone numbers, including cell phones and fixed and private and professional numbers. Clubhouse is connected in real time to their users' phone books, meaning each time you add a new number to your phone book, the number is automatically added into the secret database of Clubhouse. Each number is ranked by a score. The score corresponds to the number of Clubhouse users who have this specific phone number in their phone book. With this score, we are able to evaluate the level of the network of each phone number in the world. 
we can do a national and international ranking of each human and organization. A sample is available, blah, 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 and he, he gives a link to another one of his postings. I am looking for only one serious buyer. It's an exclusive sale only. It will be sold through a private auction on the 4th of September, which he notes interesting, interestingly is Google's 23rd anniversary. To participate in this private auction, leave a comment and I will send you a link to participate. And then he says, all the GAFA, G-A-F-A, and I believe that's, it's kind of like FANG. It's one of the acronyms for the big tech companies. So that's probably Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. All the GAFA and co companies, I'm assuming, from Silicon Valley use the same process of phone book importation. They all collect data on people who are not members of their service. It's a dangerous violation of human privacy rights. They have private data on users who do not even use Clubhouse and are able to evaluate them. The GDPR law promises that companies that collect data on non-users will be punished. It's time to see if the law is going to sanction Clubhouse or if it's only a threat. So that's interesting. So <laughs> this is basically vigilante justice going on here, I guess. This guy is making a statement by hacking this data and making it available to prompt the discussion, apparently. Well, and probably make some money in the process. Uh, of these privacy policies. So I thought that was interesting. We'll probably hear more about that in the future, but I wanted to bring that one up. So all of that leads to the tip of the week. And it's kind of hard to summarize in a short sentence, but basically be careful who you give your phone data to and what you give your phone data to. Because in particular, I want to talk about your vehicle. So the blanket statement, first of all, is whenever you're, you know, your app or social media service or anything, honestly, asks you for access to your phone book, just say no. I mean, unless they absolutely need it. Um, for example, Signal is one of the ones where you might want, I think you may even have to give access to your ad address book, but that's also one of the few companies I would trust with that data. Signal is, uh, uses your phone number, uh, though I think there's a new option now that you can not do that, but that uses your phone number as your contact info. Uh, your username basically is your phone number. So uh, I'll have to look into that again and see what the new method is for um, for finding people if it's not by phone number. But anyway, generally speaking, I would not give access to my contacts to anybody that doesn't, any app, any service that doesn't absolutely need it. But here's the thing for the tip of the week. When you connect your phone via Bluetooth, now if it's just hardwired, if it's like if you're using a headphone jack or I think even a USB cable, um, you can send your music to it kind of like you'd send it to headphones. But that wouldn't necessarily sync your data. But when you hook it up via Bluetooth, that gives the option of transferring your phone book to your car. Um, now, if it's your car and you plan on having it for a long time, that could be nice. You know, when your car system, you know, when you get it, when your phone's connected and you get a phone call, your little dashboard entertainment system can say you're getting a call from mom uh, or whatever. And it, it knows that because it, it, it uploaded your phone book and it knows that mom is whatever mom's number is. You know, in the same way that your phone knows that when it shows you who's calling. But the key to remember here is that data is now stored in the car. It's it's on a little hard drive of some sort that's in that car. So when you go to sell your car, you need to delete that data first. But here's the real kicker. If you rent a car, it's the exact same thing. So if you want that nice, swanky, Bluetooth wireless connection with your phone in the car and you rent a car and you want that same experience you might try to pair your phone to the car uh, entertainment system so you get that same effect. Well, if you upload your phone contact list to the rental car and then you turn that rental car in, then that data is there as well. And to drive that home, I found this article from 2017, which came out in response to a, um, 
a report, which I've also linked to in the show notes. So this is an old article, but it's directly related to this. So I want to just read a little bit from, from here. This is from ZDNet. Confusion over what should happen to data uploaded from phones connected to infotainment systems in rental cars and who is responsible for deleting it could be putting the privacy of customers at risk. A new report, and again, new is four years ago in this sense, a new report suggests it is not clear who is responsible for protecting the data that can be uploaded from the smartphones when they are connected to in-car systems. This data can include the location and contents of the smartphone as well as the user's home address and is often stored in the connected infotainment system and is not deleted. Privacy International rented a series of internet-connected cars from a vehicle hire and car sharing firms and found that not only was the information from previous drivers collected and retained in the infotainment system, but the system also contained past locations the vehicle had traveled to and could identify previously connected smartphones. And this is a quote from Millie Graham Wood, uh, a solicitor and legal officer at Privacy International. And she says, quote, in most of them, there were between five and 10 different phone identifiers. When you connect to the Bluetooth, it will store your identifier. And here, I'm sure she means mobile phone number. We also looked at the navigation systems. A lot of locations were stored. Places people had driven to, you could possibly link up with their name and drive there, unquote. Privacy International warns that not enough is being done to ensure that user information is protected, with rental firms suggesting it falls on the user to delete the data. And this is a quote from their report. It says, quote, The unanimous responses were, not only is it the individual's responsibility to delete their data when they return the rental car, the individual is further responsible for informing other passengers who connect their devices to the car that their data is being stored on the car and not necessarily deleted, unquote. And I've expurgated this a little bit here. They've talked to several rental car companies. And it says, most of the companies involved say the rules on deleting user information are in the terms and conditions of the car hire. But according to Privacy International, these aren't made clear to users and their passengers. Privacy International knows that while some cars appear to give the drivers the ability to perform a quote-unquote factory reset of the car, in some instances, the option is difficult to locate and it is also not clear on what data will be deleted. Okay, so... Your tip of the week is really just to understand that this is happening uh, and to avoid connecting your phone via Bluetooth to rental cars, if you can help it. Uh, when I rented my car in Hawaii, I, I connected it via USB connector, uh, lightning to USB, which let me play the music through it, but it didn't take the data off the phone. Now, I would hope that in almost every one of these cars, when you connect via Bluetooth, it would give you some sort of a prompt saying, you know, do you want to transfer your contact list or address book or something like that? And at that point, you would say no, but I would just avoid it altogether. That Bluetooth connection can be more dangerous in terms of data transfer and data information transfer than just uh, certainly than any kind of a headphone connection. If you've just got the regular three and a half millimeter headphone jack kind of an aux connection, that's not a problem at all. So if you really want to be certain, if you really want to use the car stereo for your phone, then that's the way you want to go. So if you have done that, then this will be hard. And supposedly, according to all these car rental companies and whatever, you can they leave the car manual in there so that you can dig into the car's manual and figure out how to delete data. Now, how often are you going to do that? Never. But if you own a car, and obviously when you own the car, you, you probably are going to want to synchronize your phone with your car so it has your full contact information or whatever. And you can say, call mom or, you know, whatever, and, and it will know what you're talking about. Just make sure that when you go to return the car if it's a lease or sell a car to a new owner or trade it in or whatever, that you do dig through your car's manual and figure out how to completely reset and delete any data that may be stored uh, in that car. And there you have it. There's the news and your tip of the week.
right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. We've got more great content coming up every week, as always. Next week, we're going to be talking to Johnny Ryan, a very interesting interview. Uh, he's from the Irish Council on Civil, Civil Liberties, and he is part of a group that is suing in Germany some data brokers and what they're calling the biggest data breach ever. And this is all around this process of real-time bidding, which we alluded to in today's show, where all this data being collected about you is distributed to thousands, literally thousands, probably tens of thousands of data brokers and marketers to figure out in milliseconds on every page you load on the internet and every ad space on your apps and your phones that you load to figure out what ad is going to be shown to you. And as we can see, uh, when you collect all this massive amounts of data, even if you try to anonymize that data, it's often trivial to re-identify. So that all this data that they're collecting that they say is anonymized and can't be tracked back to you, in reality, can. And then after the interview with Johnny Ryan, uh, I will be live from DEF CON in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, I say live. I'll be recording... My plan is to record a lot of material while I'm there on the go so you can vicariously experience it with me uh, and bundle that all together into a a podcast and hopefully publish it from there because I will still be in Las Vegas Monday morning. But if for some reason I have trouble getting it all edited and posted from there, um, there may be a delay in that one coming Monday night or Tuesday morning or something like that. So just FYI. But that should be a lot of fun. And uh, I am expecting to talk to some very interesting people at DEF CON. So that is going to be a really fun episode. A couple things really quick before I go. Haven't had any new reviews on the podcast in a very long time, uh, and I could really use some some, some more reviews and some fresh reviews. So uh, if you're liking this podcast, please go to your podcast app, particularly uh, Apple Podcasts. That's where a lot of people get their stuff, but uh, wherever would be good. Um, leave, leave a really nice review. That would, that's very, very helpful in getting noticed. Uh, and if they're on iTunes, I keep an eye on those and I will read them here uh, aloud if they show up there. Also, same for the book. Uh, need some more reviews for that on Amazon as well. And if I see those, I will also read them here. So COVID isn't gone, folks. It's resurging in a lot of places because we haven't vaccinated ourselves fast enough. So let's get on that. Get out, get, get out there, get your vaccination if you haven't already. Help others to get theirs as well. Like literally help people book the appointment and or drive them to the appointment if necessary. We've got to get up to herd immunity. Uh, or even you know, who knows what the next variant is going to be. The Delta variant is bad enough. They're talking about some Lambda variant now. And and who's who knows what the next one is going to be. But it could, it could just be worse. We've got to stomp this sucker out before it gets to that point. So anyway, sorry to harp on that every week. I, I, I know I'm a broken record. I just feel that it's really important. So anyway, take care, everybody out there. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your dropping shaft.